The initiation that occurs in puberty is really about team building, is about establishing that group identity. And it's also about establishing a greater sense of your own physical and emotional skill level so that you actually can begin to gain or at least get on the path of mastery around certain skills. So, you know, not surprisingly, you know, at that age, you know, clubs like Boy Scouts or joining sports teams become really fundamental for boys and they can function exactly like this sort of initiatory enterprise. But again, unless it's brought to bear consciously by the coaches, you know, by the teachers, by the elders, and they say, this is what's happening and this is the meaning you need to derive from it, then it's an open question whether it functions that way. Welcome to Crazy Wisdom. I'm your host, Luke Antrup. Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. Hello, everyone. So before we dive into this week's interview with Frederick Marks, I have an announcement, which is we are thrilled to be launching a new program. Uh, it's a rite of passage program for boys and their father figures. It's called the Father-Son Connection Experience. And this is a rite of passage for boys 10 to 14 years old to mark their entry into the teenage years. We're going to really focus on cultivating and deepening the bond between the boys and their father figures. And we'll have some other elements around emotional awareness and emotional healing, some martial arts, a lot of time in nature and connecting to nature, some elements of ceremony and ritual, and some really deep, powerful conversations around personal power, around boundaries and consent and sex for these boys as they enter into the teenage years. So if you're interested, head over to fathersonconnection.com. And we'd love to see as many of you there as possible. We've got uh, room for about 10 more father-son duos. All right, so fathersonconnection.com. And here is the interview with Frederick. Well, I'm thrilled to welcome on this week's show, Frederick Marks. Frederick is a storyteller. His storytelling takes a few different forms. He's a filmmaker. Uh, he's an author and he's a musician. Welcome to the show, Frederick. Thank you. It's a pleasure to see you. Yeah, so good to see you again, my friend. So as we were recounting before we pressed record, we've known each other for a few years now. Yeah, 23 years ago, almost. Yeah, we met in Windsor, Ontario uh, for a, a gathering that Bill Kalth, the founder of the Mankind Project, put together with a lot of young folks like yourselves and some elders like me to try to figure out how we can organize a workshop uh, uh, for young people. And you took the ball and ran with it and made uh, a, a outs a, not against the machine. What was the name? Beyond the machine. Beyond the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Which <laughs> I had the privilege to sit in on one of your, whatever, five or six workshops that you guys did. And, Anyway, yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. So much of your storytelling has been focused on this concept of rites of passage. And your book, 
you, you have a recent book out that's focused on rites of passage. So I thought today would just be our conversation. I just, you know, really excited and, and intrigued to get your thoughts, your wisdom, and have a bit of a dialogue around rites of passage. How does that sound? Sounds great. Yeah. So we met 20 some odd years ago. Um, I'd actually come across your work before meeting you. And uh, many of us that, you know, were coming of age in the 90s probably came across Frederick's film Hoop Dreams, just an astounding documentary about the lives of two urban black youth boys in high school during the 90s and their relationship to basketball and what that meant for them. And it is a, just a beautiful piece of art. Actually, I think the first time I came across it was when I was in high school, but I subsequently it was required viewing in a sociology class at the University of Missouri because it does such a beautiful job of kind of ethnographical interviewing and, and, and kind of that deep documentarian work of like really understanding someone's life, where they live, the conditions of their life, their hopes and their dreams, but also the, the environment they're in. It was nominated for, uh, for an Oscar, yeah? Yeah, we got nominated for editing. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a big scandal because we were not nominated as best documentary. And there's a long and sordid backstory to that, which I won't go into. But uh, yeah, so we did go to the Academy Awards, though, but uh, we lost to Forrest Gump. Uh, well, okay. You could lose to worse films, I suppose. <laughs> well, and, and uh, Roger Ebert called it the film of the 1990s, right? Ranked it the top of his yeah. list for the decade. Yeah. So for those that, that haven't seen the film, definitely it's such a beautiful piece of art. It's worth seeing, maybe those that weren't around. And uh, for the, those younger members in our audience and our Crazy Wisdom audience, I think it's also, it like stands up, right? Because it, it really, it holds up because it is actually like a, it captures the energy and the spirit of the 90s in all of its the, kind of that gritty Chicago edge of the 1990s. And it is, it's just a beautiful film. So I highly recommend it. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, for, for me, it, it's part of what began my journey of inquiry into rites of passage. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, after filming these boys and their families for four and a half years and taking eight years to make the film, the big question that I was left sitting with was, who is there in the adult world to help young men to cross the threshold of adolescence into young adulthood to fulfill their destiny, if you will, uh, and is not out to basically exploit them for their own ends? Who is doing this out of a kind of a community-based recognition that they need support and guidance in order to fulfill who they are. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that's what began my inquiry. It was that and also doing my weekend workshop at the Mankind Project. Uh, it was around the same time that Hoop Dreams came out. It was October 1995. Uh, so that also was my long overdue initiation into mature masculinity. So anyway, the question got thrown back in my mind, to adolescent boys in particular. And then a couple of years later, I moved to Newark, New Jersey, and I made a TV miniseries called Boys to Men? And I filmed a bunch of 15-year-old teenage boys uh, and across the rainbow, beautiful spectrum of boys uh, to, to try to determine where are they and are they getting this support? And if not, why not? And where are they getting stuck? 
So that f- series for me, halfway through it, I realized, you know what? This isn't enough because in effect, the series became a statement of the problem mm-hmm. of where teenage boys are getting stuck and not being supported through mentorship and initiation. So then that's what gave birth to the concept of the rites of passage films and work that I've been doing for the last 15 or more years, ultimately leading to this book and also to the short films that are available for free on our website at warriorfilms.org. Wonderful. So yeah, I think a good place to start with this conversation. I mean, you've just done such deep research. You've convened leaders of rites of passage across the spectrum, and you, you really have kind of positioned yourself and the, in the organization, the book, kind of at the center of collating a lot of work and wisdom that's been done around rites of passage. Maybe a good place to start is like, very simply put, what is a rite of passage? Yeah, well, a, a rite of passage is basically a community-created ritual or a series of rituals that basically help a, a given individual transition from one life life phase into another. And if you break down the normal human lifespan, you could argue there's at least six, seven, eight natural rites of passage, birth into childhood, childhood into puberty, puberty into adolescence, adolescence into young adulthood, young adulthood into middle age, often accomplished by being a parent and having children, middle age into eldership, eldership into death. All of these are rites of passage where symbolically we have to die to the former self, the former identity that we had, and be, again, symbolically reborn into some new sense of who I am and what I'm now here to do with this part of my life. Wonderful. So you mentioned this word initiation in that, right? And I'm just wondering... That has a lot of different connotations and a lot of different applications. I'm wondering for you, in the context of rites of passage, what, what's the role of initiation? And maybe you could also just, again, at laying the ground here, define initiation a bit. Help us understand what do we mean when we say initiation? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, I'll, I'll start by saying that we commonly misuse and misunderstand the term rites of passage. Okay. Because we have these commonly held cultural definitions for these terms, and typically what that connotes to uh, to most people are what I would call dysfunctional or unconscious rites of passage. So let's focus just on one, from adolescence into young adulthood. So for many people, they consider having your first sexual experience a rite of passage. They say, oh, having your first drink is a rite of passage, learning to drive the car, uh, getting to vote, uh, or getting married even. So all of these things, you know, can be part of uh, a rite of passage, but only if they're actually called out and consciously celebrated and consecrated by elders in community. So if there are not a number of ideally public rituals where the community gathers to name the process, what's going on right now with this young person, then that 
right of the, the the potential impact of a real rite of passage will be lost. It will not have its truly transformational meaning and intent. So is that clear? Is that yeah, you know? yeah, sure. I think also maybe just layering in this concept of the hero's journey, right? In, in any any sort of initiation, there's you, you write about this in your book, rights to a good life. Uh, it's just it's wonderful. I, I recommend actually to our listeners who already appreciate the audio format, get this on Audible. It's incredible. Frederick has taken clips from his various interviews over the years with just illuminaries around around this field of rites of passage and use the direct quotes from his films in the audio format. So it it's unlike most books you will download on Audible where you're actually getting, it's much more like an audio documentary. It's brilliant. Highly recommend it. And in this, you talk a lot about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey model, right? The three steps. Can you walk us through what those three steps are and how they fit into this idea of initiation? Yeah, well, and you can, you know, the term was first coined, we should mention, I can't remember now if it was 1908 or 1912, but a book by Carl Van Gennep called Rites of Passage. You know, he had done a lot of research, cross-cultural anthropological research, to look at these various rites of passage around the world. And so he boiled it down to three basic ingredients. Now, depending on who you talk to, you, there can be many more, five, six, seven, whatever. But I like to keep things simple. And for me, the three basic ingredients are separation, ordeal, and return. And each of those three uh, archetypal phases of initiation can be called by many names. Um, so separation uh, and typically means separating from our daily lives. So we have to basically get outside of the everyday in order to be able to experience something of who we are at root, our fundamental essence. So we have to let go of all of our ego identification tools and surroundings. So that means everything from, of course, starting with the most obvious, cell phones, uh, computers, and the like. Uh, but even, you know, the foods we eat, the times that we get up, uh, and the, not to mention the activities that we do in a given day, and ideally physically be removed from our daily surroundings into an unfamiliar, ideally also setting in nature, out in the real world, where we can also, part of the journey should be uh, basically reuniting, reacquainting ourselves, not only with our deepest human nature, but with the nature of this mother planet, right? So of the life that sustains all of us. So anyway, so that's separation. You've got to be totally, and, and it impacts time, our sense of time, because you have to be separated uh, from chronos time, you know, uh, 24 hours in a day, 365 days a year into some new form of time. Fortunately, the Greeks had a word for this too, keros, which means sacred or cosmic time, which is the time that it takes for a star to die. Uh, the, you know, the time that it takes uh, for the leaves to appear in the spring, right? So, or times that we can be familiar with through uh, experiences with psychedelics, for example. 
So anyway, so we enter into this new frame of time, and that's the middle stage, the ordeal, the liminal phase, the threshold phase, some call it. And in that phase, where we've now separated from our everyday lifestyles and habits, we are kind of back to basics, to just who we are as a human being, thinking, feeling, sensing. And we have to be given a challenge. And that challenge can be can take a million different forms, but you know, typically among uh, African tribes uh, in the in the uh, bygone era, it could be putting a spear in the hand of a young man and saying, "Go out and kill a lion." Uh, and you can imagine what kind of a challenge that would be, right? Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, there were many uh, young men uh, who would not survive. Uh, given initiations, given these rites of passage. And this was assumed on the part of the community traditionally to be actually a kind of a a silver lining to the cloud, an unspoken blessing that there might have been something that that person was carrying that might have been harmful in future to the community. So at at any rate, uh, you're, you're in this liminal phase, you're in this ordeal, you have to accomplish this seemingly impossible task. And then in the final stage then is homecoming, is return. So you have to come back and be reintegrated with the community, but you have to bring the blessings of what it is that you've experienced. And it takes the wisdom of elders to help you derive what those blessings might be. So you come back traditionally and you tell your story. This is what happened to me. And every aspect of that story becomes an archetypal signifier of the journey that you've been on. So there are no irrelevant pieces of data to that journey. It's all significant. It's all part of the new identity that you will be born into. So that's what the community and the elders do. They help you figure out who is this new person and what gifts do they bring to the community? So that's when they're giving new names. That's when they're often given new physical signifiers like tattoos or scars to indicate that they are no longer that child, that adolescence, that adolescent they used to be, and they're now an adult with all the rights and responsibilities of all of the adults in the community, bearing particular gifts for that community so that they know exactly how they fit in. Wonderful. So we live in an era where these rites of passage have been in many communities forgotten. They've been pushed aside. We have a culture of uninitiated leaders, and that has had a cost. In your book, you write about this, like the thread of time or the, there's like a continuity that's been lost, right? It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing where we don't have a community of initiated to welcome the initiated back in. So we're having to reintroduce these rites of passage. And um, I think it's helpful, first of all, before we go too deep into this, just to lay out like, what is the cost of having a culture of uninitiated? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you can look at pretty much any problem we're facing in the world today and mm-hmm. and and in some way uh, uh, trace it back to the uninitiated individuals who are largely in power across the planet and are making these decisions. So, uh, you know, just to break it down, uh, 
you know, so why is there no international collective action on climate change? Well, because there's a number of individuals who are stuck in what I call suspended adolescence. They may be 60, 70, 80 years old, but they're living in shadow. They're still in that adolescent identity of me, mine, right? And they're not living in that adult uh, world of us, us together, right? And so they're grabbing all the spoils they can. So it doesn't matter if they're still, you know, making billions off carbon extraction. They don't give a shit what it means to the planet. Okay. And then, you know, the same is true in the political sphere, right? We're, we're seeing, in, in a sense, a regression of what I would call mature masculinity in the field of politics. And it's all about suspended adolescence. You know, let me grab whatever power I can in whatever way I can for me. You know, there's no servant leadership. Uh, enacted really in the world. So at any rate, the, the, the implications of this are everywhere and enormous. Yeah. And we see it, we see it collectively in our culture, right? The, the uninitiated leaders. We also, these ceremonial rites of passage have been around for so long, millennia, right? And in some ways, maybe they're just hardwired into us. I think they are. Yeah. There's research on, you know, on what ceremony and ritual does to the human brain and the need for it and where, what centers of the brain it lights up. And in some ways we are, we are wired for it. And so we find ourselves, many, many of us in the culture, maybe most are looking for these rites of passage, the demarcation from childhood to adulthood. And it manifests in other forms, right? Whether it be um, violence or, or greed. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the personal this part about how it's missing on an individual level as well and how individuals are seeking it out at a young age. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there have been books written, I think, with the very name called The Fatherless Society, right? Mm -hmm. And so many of our fathers in particular, and not only fathers, certainly, but uh, in the case of men, it carries a special significance, certainly, to not have fathers in our lives blessing us. Um, in fact, Robert Bly said, you know, so much of the American male can be explained by their unconscious desire to reach out for their father's blessing, right? Mm. And the last few presidents of the United States, particularly Trump and Bush, come right to mind looking for dad's blessing in everything that they're doing unconsciously. So uh, what does this mean, you know, for the individual? Well. If we don't have, come together as a community and basically consecrate these passages when they appear, uh, it can create all kinds of problems because then people start unconsciously acting them out. And the way that they unconsciously acting them out, act them out uh, is through these trials, these ordeals mm -hmm. that they come together as peers to create for themselves that are, uh, in a sense, in some ways, they're, they're, they're not bad trials. They're not bad in and of themselves. Uh, I mean, take, for example, hey, you know, six friends sitting around. I wonder if we can drink, you know, two six packs and drive 100 miles an hour down, down this neighborhood street. You know, well, you know, so the, the point of elders is to make these things safer, right? So that people do not ultimately have to risk their lives and risk the lives of others in order to prove the capacity 
of their own bodies and the capacities of their own human reach, right? So the, the, and it gets really problematic to some degree in, in gangs. So you can understand that the function of gangs is actually a very healthy one in many ways. It's very wholesome and good. And it makes a lot of sense for a lot of young people, not only urban young people, but wherever they find themselves, who've been abandoned by their elders, who've been abandoned by their parents, to find peers to form family units with, to bond, to create community. The problem comes when the tests, the trials that they have to go through in order to become accepted members in that community involve violence, violence either to themselves or other people. And it can be, you know, the trial to, and for some gangs, you know, go out and, and shoot somebody, kill somebody. In fact, what happened to my neighbor in Oakland a couple of years ago, I believe, was exactly that kind of rite of passage for a young man who ended up uh, walking into our driveway, hitting her, pulling her out of her car that was running and getting in the car and stealing it. Uh, and he was just a kid, you know, I don't think he was more than 17 years old. Uh, and he did it without a weapon. And that is part of the trial that was put before him, something like that. So at any rate, we have these dysfunctional modes of initiation that all it takes is eldership and guidance to actually make them functional and pro-social. Yeah. Very helpful framing. One of the things you talk about in your book is there's like a, an initiation that happens between 11 and 13 around puberty. And then there's another initiation that happens at 16 or 17. Um, specifically, let's talk about boys and men, right? And I'm just curious, that's a delineation that I haven't often seen. I think it's very helpful. A 12-year-old when they hit puberty is not a man yet necessarily in this culture, right? It's a little bit of a different initiation than moving into 17, 18 years old. Can you help us understand a little bit more about those distinctions? Yeah, absolutely. And But first, let me just make it clear, these are not my original ideas. I mm -hmm. mean, that particular idea comes from Bill Plotkin. Mm -hmm. uh, and Bill has done a magnificent job of sort of mapping the terrain of all of these different rites of passage over the course of a given human lifespan. So the initiation that occurs in puberty is really about team building, is about establishing that group identity. And it's also about establishing a, a, a greater uh, sense of your own physical and emotional skill level. Mm -hmm so that you actually can begin to gain uh, or at least get on the path of mastery around certain skills. So, so, you know, not surprisingly, you know, at that age, you know, clubs like Boy Scouts or joining sports teams, you know, became, become really fundamental uh, for boys and they can function exactly like this sort of initiatory enterprise. But again, unless it's sort of brought to bear consciously by the coaches, you know, by the teachers, by the elders, and they say, this is what's happening and this is the meaning you need to derive from it, then it, it's, it's an open question whether it functions that way. So that's very, very different in a way from the late adolescent journey, 17, 18, 19, which uh, Bill calls soul initiation where all of those social skills that we've built through our adolescence and that were initially affirmed in that puberty initiation 
in a sense, have to be dismantled because we actually have to experience ego dissolution in that phase of soul initiation. So all of those things that we've identified as, you know, my team, my brothers, my skills, my capacities, even the reach of my intelligence has to be challenged and to some degree dissembled. So the soul initiation is the one that basically reintroduces us to the cosmic world, to the greatest forces that are at work in the universe. And it helps us understand, let's just say one fundamental thing, that as a human being, I am incomprehensibly uh, uh, small and irrelevant when it comes to all of what's occurring in the universe. And paradoxically, also experience, I am immeasurably powerful and can make incredible impact in that universe that uh, can go beyond all capacity to imagine. So that, and that's just one aspect. So, and the other I sort of touched on before is nature, understanding that the processes of growth on this planet, that I am a fundamental function and part of those processes. So in a sense, I'm no different from the tree that's outside my window right here. I just have a different function to play during my given lifespan than that tree does. But they're, they have to correlate, and, they, and we have to recognize that they're interdependent. So soul initiation introduces us to some of these ideas. Yeah. So, so for me, in my own journey, I was 22 years old when I, when I did the Mankind Project Weekend that you talked about, and this was my initiation into manhood. You know, I was a, maybe a few years later than, than most, but <laughs> it, it did happen for me. It was like uh, I'm one of these... I think I'm kind of like one of the products of like my, my life. I trace a lot of my life back to that moment of being in a circle of men in the woods around a fire, having done deep exploration, having my ego challenged, having my shadows presented in front of me, having touched a deep wound in myself, being supported by mentors and elders, time alone in the, in the wilderness, time with brothers in the wilderness. And in a ceremonial moment with the talisman given to me, saying like, you are now a man, you're a warrior. And it had such a profound impact on my life. I, I really like, there's very few things that have shaped who I am more than that. At a pretty young age, 22 years old. And in, as part of that, what, part of what you're pointing to is like, there was a transpersonal mission that I was kind of, that came out of that, right? Like it was no longer about just me, small, self me there was something that was to be given back to the community back to the tribe and look it's been you know 20 some years of that and that's really sent me on this path of my life of you know teaching and you know creating experiences of healing and transformation for people so i think that's what rites of passage can be especially at that moment of like you know the true marking of of manhood well, and you're extremely lucky. I mean, what's going through my mind is you say you were somewhat old at 22. <laughs> it's like, in, in this culture, are you kidding? Yeah, yeah, You exactly. are incredibly young and incredibly lucky yeah. to have this. I was 18 years older when I finally had mine, 
-hmm. It did have the exact same impact that you're talking about that yours had. But Bill Clockton says very clearly, many people never in their entire lives accomplish this soul initiation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is to the ultimate detriment, as we've already talked about, to society yeah. as a whole. Yeah, I mean, this is what we, so, so this maybe is a good time to layer in, like, I, you know, so some of the work that I'm doing now is not at that stage, but at the 10 to 14 is what, where we're focused. And it's very much focused on the father-son connection. So we're bringing in the fathers. It's not a classic initiation because I still believe like parents can't really initiate their kids. That has to be done by the village, the elders, the uncles. But at, you know, at 11, at 12, we can take them through the elements of separating them from technology, bring them into the wilderness together with their fathers and strengthen the bond between father and son, have real conversations, do a lot of training around martial arts and embodiment. And then they come back with having done some emotional healing, having talked about touch and consent and personal power and sex and, and really understanding how to live with emotions cranking through their system as they enter into puberty. So this is our program that we're focused on now, which is called Thresholds. Right. Yeah. So you've collected a lot of different organizations and retreats and teachers and you've compiled this beautiful book that talks through some of the elements of initiation. And in this, you've, you point out that it's not just at this stage of life, right? The kind of adolescence, the, you know, there's, there are different phases throughout the life cycle. And I'm wondering if you might just say a word about your own journey, about some rites of passage and initiations throughout your own life. Well, absolutely. Uh, so. You know, my first book, uh, which is called At Death Do Us Part, is focused on two latter stage initiations. It's focused on that initiation from eldership into death for my late wife, who I had the privilege of supporting her to her final breath. And that's what the book is about. It's about uh, that journey that uh, we took together up until her death and my journey through the grief afterward. And so that's what it's also about, is my initiation from middle age into eldership, uh, because my life was transformed by that experience over many months with my late wife. So, and it's interesting because you know, I did an interview the other day, and, and, the, and the interviewer asked me directly, well, what has been your greatest life teacher? And I said, death. Death has been my greatest life teacher. And that started, of course, when I was nine years old and I lost my father suddenly to a heart attack. And that has informed all of the work that I've done since into mature masculinity because I didn't have a, any elders showing up to mentor me. I didn't have a community to initiate. Uh, but it even informs the film that I'm now starting on and working on about life honoring celebrations, which is something that we did for my late wife before she passed. It turned out to be 12 days before she passed. Mm. And uh, the working title of the film is It's Your Wonderful Life. And the whole idea is very simple. It's to stand funerals on its head so that we don't wait until people pass before we gather as community and celebrate and honor 
calling out and naming the wonderful things that they've given to us through their lifetime. So we did that for my late wife. We had a beautiful community ceremony. Uh, and so the reason I bring this up, to me, that's also a fundamental component of that, those, those final rituals that accomplish that grand rite of passage of eldership into death, mm. is having this kind of life-honoring celebration. It's so beautiful. Such a potent example of what ceremony and ritual can be. I'm just curious, are there any, like, we talk about these as like frames, like these snapshots in, your, in our minds that we carry with us. I'm wondering if there isn't a frame or two from Tracy's celebration of life that, you, that lives in you as like a, a memory that you treasure or cherish, or like a, an encounter that you had during that ritual that still lives on within you. Well, it's, there's, there's many, and it's been brought right back uh, into the present moment for me because we're just finishing a two-minute trailer that wow. we're going to use to basically go out and fundraise the money that we need to make this film. Perhaps you can describe to us you know, the elements in this, in this trailer. What are we seeing? Well, all you're really seeing are clips from Tracy's Life Honoring Celebration. Mm-hmm. So, and I write about this, by the way, uh, at length in the first book, At Death Do Us Part, but also in somewhat shorter fashion, but in the second book as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's just clips uh, from her ceremony, uh, intercut with uh, titles and stock footage. Empty your mind of all thoughts. Let your heart be at peace. We're here together to offer our love and support to Tracy. Our students love you. You made a difference through your work, through how you live your life. You make a difference. My, my life is better because of you. One of the things I loved about her from the moment I first met her was she knew who she was. She was very solid. I've never met anyone who cared more about teaching. Never met anybody who cared more about inspiring others. You've been a guide for me and a mentor for me. I didn't know. (laughs) What I remember is the conversations we would have about being mothers. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely. Yes. Immersed in the wonder of the now, you can deal with whatever life brings you. Sometimes somebody comes into a group and you're like, oh, damn, this would make a good friend. And uh, that's how I felt. But I spoke to my therapist about it, and we got a lot of work done. Uh, I'm just so lucky to be part of your life, and that you're part of my life. I just appreciate you, love you, respect you, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And I'll also make sure that uh, your beloved is well cared for. Mm-hmm. And when death comes, 
You are ready. Thank you so much for sharing this. What a vivid example of what rites of passage can be. You also write in your book about an earlier rite of passage for you. And uh, just to paint a picture, you're at Sundance. You've had this desire, maybe you've, you've done maybe a little bit of psychotherapy. You've had this desire to show emotion publicly, but it hasn't happened for you. Can you walk us through what's happening for you at Sundance? You're at the, you know, Hoop Dreams is on the circuit. It's got, it's just, you know, the world is really responding to this beautiful, beautiful piece of art. What happens for you at Sundance? Well, we got the audience favorite film award. So of course we're called to the stage to uh, receive our statuettes. And uh, I came to the mic first. And what happened was completely unintended to some degree. I started saying, you know, this has been a hard and long journey. And it had been eight years to that point. And what started coming out of me was some of that pain, actually. And so some tears came out with it. And I, I went on to say that receiving your recognition at this time and in this way is so meaningful and is so healing. So th those are basically the words that I said. Uh, but what was, in a sense, transformative for me was that for a number of years, I realized, you know, I had worked with a world-class therapist for years, but at a certain point, I realized, you know, I'm only, I only feel safe in, in sharing my feelings with her. You know, what good is that? You know, mm -hmm. I need to take them out into the world. And so at some level, unconsciously, I knew that if and when I could cross that threshold of being open-hearted and sharing my tears with a group of people publicly, that that would be a kind of a coming out party for me. And that's what happened. So I only realized after the fact that I finally had crossed that threshold and cried in public. And it felt really good. I mean, there were some people in the room, including one of our funders at the MacArthur Foundation, who I'm not sure was as excited about it and keen on it as I was. <laughs> but, you know, he said, wow, you kept us all in dramatic suspense there while you were talking. <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was a wonderful moment for me. Yeah, truly. And, you know, as men, this isn't always the thing that's encouraged. It's um, often not safe. And we, we build these strategies over a lifetime of learning that it's not safe to reveal emotion in such vulnerable ways. So for you to, to do so and kind of reclaim your power of your own vulnerability, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful example of how you know, doing something in, a, in the public eye that with the community watching can be um, life-changing. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it's obviously one of the sub-themes of everything that we're talking about here, right? Right. Because, you know, one of the beautiful lessons that Sabonfu Somme taught me, you know, this wonderful uh, teacher, uh, grief is not fully released until it is witnessed. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have witnesses to experience our grief 
and in a sense to hold us, to hold us in our grief. Uh, because until that happens, we will uh, unconsciously carry it alone. And especially in Western society, where we're filled with this nonsense about do it yourself, go it alone, right? Uh, it can become toxic. And so, you know, frankly, I feel like given the state of the world today, there's nothing that's arguably more important right now than people coming together collectively to do grieving rituals. Hmm. I think we need to do this. This is paramount for us to grieve all of what is passing before our very eyes, including this beautiful Mother Earth and in the present, present condition that she's in. Uh, but not to mention so many other things to grieve, you know, on the economic sphere, the political sphere, human health systems breaking down, et cetera. Yeah. So, so we need to be witnessed in our grief. So my friend Frederick has spent much of his life focused on shining a light and telling stories about rites of passage. I mean, you've told some just beautiful tales, hoop dreams, you've done work with veterans returning home, films of young monks finding their way to the monastery in the, in the high mountains. You've done stories of mentorship and of American youth. And, um, you know, I know you probably in the most deepest way of spending weeks in silence together, you know, week at a time over many weeks on tops of mountaintops around, <laughs> around North America. And, um, you know, there's something about, you know, we've had co many conversations over the years, but there's a way in which you get to know someone in such a deeper way when you are sitting next to them <laughs> for 14 hours a day, occasionally getting up and walking around the Zendo, um, you get to feel someone's essence. And I, what I know about you is you have a very deep practice. And I'm just wondering, you know, for this audience who, you know, many of us here are you know, committed to finding practices that really make us the best version of ourselves. I'm wondering if you could say a word or two just about how your practices have informed your art, have informed your work. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, what, what comes to mind is more so how it's supported my life. Mm -hmm. uh, because I feel like I, I probably wouldn't be here literally, if I didn't have this practice to support and sustain my life. Mm -hmm. Every single day I wake up, I say Atta Deepa. And for those of your listeners who don't know, Atta Deepa is the first part of our morning service in the hollow bones order. And it's supposedly the Buddha's last words, his final advice to his practitioners, be a lamp unto yourself. Right? That's the ancient Pali language, Atta Deepa. So I say those words and I say them to myself and I say the whole service to, you know, aloud, but to myself. And it's an important reminder to me that, you know, not to get hooked up into all this ego identification with my sorrows in the world. And I'm a human being, I have plenty of them. You know, I have plenty of challenges. And I also, for the record, have plenty of shadows. And that I have to keep, you know, scrupulous track of. So the service helps me do that. It helps me keep track of all of that. But, you know, back to your original question about my work, 
you know, it's interesting how my life and my work have always kind of deeply informed each other. And so the, the, the aspects of work that I choose to, to make films about or write books about come very deeply out of my own life, my lived life, and how I've experienced it. So they're inseparable. You know, I think I've, I just got through explaining, you know, my first book is about my wife dying. You know, this film is also partly about my wife dying and these life honoring celebrations, etc. So for me, that's a very good operative strategy is how does the personal figure in and out of the social, the collective. Wonderful. This is Frederick Marx. If people want to find your work, where might we point them? Warriorfilms.org. That's my nonprofit uh, film production company. But you can find my books online and Amazon. Uh, and, and the films you can find elsewhere too, but mostly on our website. Great. And we'll throw links into the show notes for people that want to click through there. I also understand that it's in a few weeks you have a new book dropping. I think we're going to have to have you come back on because. Tell us what, tell everybody what this new book's about, because I think, I think the crazy wisdom crowd is going to like this one. Well, the title of the book is Turds of Wisdom. <laughs> and the subtitle is Irreverent Real Life Stories from a Buddhist Rebel. Mm -hmm. So basically what I've done, again, to your point, you know, mm -hmm. I've mined my own life and I have a lot of stories from my own life, uh, dating back to when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Uh, and, but it's my first humor book. It's my first comedy book. So yes, I believe that there's some wisdom in there, but the main initial starting point for me was I want to make people laugh because especially in this time when we're all suffering so much and so challenged, I think if I can just put a smile on people's faces and make them laugh, maybe that is one of the greatest contributions I can make in this time. But to your Dharma uh, listeners, there's a lot of Dharma stories in there. So there's a lot of funny stories from our retreats that we mm -hmm. did at Hollow Bones uh, and from other retreats that I've been on. Because to me, retreat is an incredible setting for all kinds of humorous uh, interpersonal things to occur. So I'll just leave it at that. But I'd love to come back on and talk about it. Turds of wisdom coming coming to Amazon and Audible soon. We can't wait. And for those that are interested in hearing more of these tales, I recently had Keith Martin Smith on the podcast. Go give that a listen. We go deep into the Hollow Bones Zen Order and some of these crazy stories with Junpo Dennis Kelly and others. So, my dear friend Frederick Marx, thank you so much for taking time. Can't wait to have you back on to hear more about your your new book. My pleasure, my friend. Great to see you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. Maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy. 